0: For several years there was a game show on television called Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Do you remember that show? I don't know if any of you might have seen it or remembered. I don't think it's on the air anymore. But Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? The way that game show operated was that a contestant was asked 10 questions. The the questions actually came from elementary school textbooks And if you got all 10 questions right, you would win a million dollars. As I understand it, in the the time that that show was on the air, there were only two people who ever won the million dollar prize. One was the superintendent of public schools in the state of Georgia. And the other was a professor at the UC Berkeley in California, and he was actually a Nobel Prize winner in physics, and and he got the million dollar prize, but other than those two, as I understand it, nobody else ever made the million. When contestants missed, when they finally missed a question, the way the show was, was designed was that they were required to say, I am not smarter than a fifth grader. I'm not smarter than a fifth grader. Today we want to sort of play on the idea of that television game show, but our question is more important and the stakes are higher. It's not a question of whether or not you could win a million dollars. The question is, can you be saved eternally in heaven? Our question to you this evening is, are you smarter than a sinner? That's the question we want to consider for a few minutes this evening as we look to God's Word together. Thanks for being here. As Bob already mentioned, boy, it's a a rainy night in uh, Alabama and you have braved the elements to be here and we are encouraged by that fact. Thanks for being here. As we study together from the Word of God, uh, I, I hope that you'll carefully consider the things that we say and make sure that they are based in fact on the Word of God. If you perceive at all that I am up here teaching you my personal opinion about things, then I invite you to completely disregard anything that I might say. But if on the other hand, we find that these truths are revealed in God's word, the challenge then becomes to put them into practice in our daily lives. That's for all of us, for you and me alike. Uh, When we learn the truth of God, we've gotta live it. And so we hope that we'll say some things tonight that might encourage in that way. Thanks for being here tonight. Thanks Thanks for inviting me to be here tonight. Are you smarter than a sinner? You know, sinners sometimes make some really mistaken arguments. For instance, a sinner will sometimes think that God won't notice the sin that he or she is committing. Sinners often do that. God won't notice if I commit this particular sin. I can can hide it. You know, I think that some People may in fact reason that way. For instance, maybe here's this husband. And what he's doing, very shamefully, is that he is on his computer late at night and he's looking at pornographic images on his computer, but he is working very hard to make sure that his wife or other family members don't know that he's doing it. He hides that. And he may succeed at that at least for a while, he's gonna hide his sin. Or maybe here's a teenager who is very tempted and has succumbed to the temptation to smoke marijuana or or to maybe to drink alcohol. And this teenager thinks I'll be able to keep that from my parents, I'll be able to do this and they won't know, they'll never discover it. Maybe so, possibly. Here's a Christian who, Comes to, the Lord's, uh, comes to worship on the Lord's day and makes a really great show of his religious devotion, but during the week, he acts and talks and conducts himself just like a person of the world. He is, in fact, a hypocrite, but he thinks he can hide that from his brethren in the local congregation, and maybe he can for a time. You know, in all of those kind of things and others, we think maybe, the sinner thinks maybe, Then he can keep it hidden. But typically those things do ultimately become discovered. But whether or not anyone else ever discovered the sin, God knows it, nothing is hidden from him. In Proverbs chapter 15, verse three, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. You're not hiding from God. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Numbers 32, verse 23 says, be sure your sin will find you out. And as I said, typically our sins find us out in this lifetime, but even if they don't, they'll be discovered in eternity and in final judgment. Be sure your sin will find you out. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, it says, neither is there any creature that's not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Do you get it? That's a very basic consideration, isn't it? God is all present and he's all knowing, he's all seeing, you're not hiding anything from God. And so you're not being very smart if you think like a sinner, and the sinner says God won't notice, God notices. So we're gonna put a big red X over that argument. You remember when you were in grade school and you got your paper back and the teacher had just marked it all up with, with a red ink pencil. Uh, I got a lot of those kind of papers back in the school days. So we're going to put a big red X over that. That's, that's a faulty argument that sinners sometimes make, that God won't notice. But sinners also sometimes think that, well, he may know what I'm doing, but actually the fact is that he doesn't really care about the sin that I'm committing, that, 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 that that's insignificant in his estimation. You know, the sinner would argue along this line that there's some really bad, bad sins out there. You know, we, we, we even refer to them, oh, these are big black sins, these are the awful sins. My sin, the sinner says my sin is not, I, I, my sin is little, I, I tell little white lies. I don't do the big black dark things, I do the little white lies and so forth. Again, that's faulty reasoning. It's faulty reasoning to imagine that God looks the other way. God notices and He cares about all sins. Several places in the New Testament there are passages that list a number of sins, sort of a cataloging of different sins if you will. And in our view some of the sins listed in those categories are really terrible, really bad. But others of the sins that are found there may be not so much in our estimation. Let me show you one example of of one of those kinds of passages. In in Romans chapter 1 near the end of that chapter the Apostle Paul is enumerating the sins of the pagan Gentile world. And there were some really bad things that, that that the Gentile world was doing and he lists some of them here. He says, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who, knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death not only do the same but have pleasure in them that do them well as you look at that list am I going to sp- we could spend the rest of the night talking in detail about every one of the sins that are listed there but just notice a couple of them Well there's fornication, sexual immorality of various kinds that's a bad that's a bad one in that's terrible that's awful And then murder, well I mean what could be worse than that? You know murder, that's just awful. Maybe one of the ones that just jumps off the page to us is when he describes them as being haters of God. Can you imagine? They hate God. Well these are some really bad people and they're doing some really bad things. And then in that same list disobedient to parents. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me that disobedient to parents belongs in the same list with murderers and people who hate God? Yeah, it belongs in the same list because all are sins and God doesn't rate sins some real bad, others not so much so. And so, uh, again, I hope that this illustrates the point that, that all sins matter to God and we cannot excuse ourselves by imagining that God doesn't really care about the sin that I'm committing. He does. And so again, strike that out with a red X. Well, well, How else might we imagine that sinners think? And our question, of course, for consideration, are you smarter than this? Sinners make these kind of bad uh, arguments. Are you smarter than that? Are you smarter than to think like a sinner thinks? How about this one? God is too loving to punish anyone. Okay, so from our first two points, here's this sinner and he says, oh, I'm willing to acknowledge uh, that I sin and God sees my sin uh, and I'm, I'm even willing to, to acknowledge that that he cares about sins of all sorts but in the end you know in the final analysis God won't be able to punish me the sinner says because God's just too loving of a God. I think a lot of people think that about God a lot of people they think of God sort of like that he's a, a doting grandfather up there in heaven and he's looking down upon us and, and, and like a grandfather, he just could never call upon us, to uh, he, he could never punish us, you know. I remember when my son and daughter-in-law left with us their, their little toddler, uh, and, and he was, I don't know, he's probably about two years old or thereabouts, we'd babysat him before but he's, he's getting old enough now to be sort of a handful, he's in, the, he's in the terrible twos, you know. And so my son Joel says, now if he shows out, you spank him. You know what I said, I'm the grandfather, you know what I said, no. There won't, be, there won't be any spanking here, that's your job. <laughs> now he needs spanking, I don't doubt that he needs spanking. You spank him when he needs it. But don't bring him here and spank me to spank you, I'm the grandfather, right? Well I think that's the way some people imagine God. God is sort of like that grandfather who could never bring himself to punish anyone. Well again, that's not true. First of all, let's establish this. To the question, is God a loving God? Well, absolutely yes, right? There's no doubt about the love of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, God will have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. So God's desire is that He wants everyone to be saved and He's provided a means by which all can be saved. He has not excluded anyone from that possibility. Whoever you are, wherever you live, whatever, whatever you're involved in in your life, He has said come, and enjoy the blessing to salvation. God's a loving God. There's just no doubt about that. And so we want to make sure that that's understood. We're not saying that God is unloving. God is very loving. Peter mentioned the same sort of thing in 2 Peter chapter three, beginning verse nine. He says, "The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, we're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God doesn't want anyone to be punished. He doesn't want anyone to suffer in final eternal judgment. God's not willing that any should uh, perish, but notice the very next verse. It says, but the day of the Lord will come, as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So God's a loving God, but He's also a just and righteous God. And He will punish those who have not submitted to His will in obedience, in humble obedience. The thing we try to point out of course is everything that God asked us to do, He asked us to do that in our own best interest like a loving parent or grandparent. He does love us but He expects us to obey and He will punish those who do not obey. I wonder are those people who make this argument, God's just too loving of a God to ever punish anyone. I wonder if they have ever read in their Bible, About the great flood in the days of Noah, the worldwide flood in the days of Noah. In Genesis chapter 7, beginning verse 17, the flood was forty days upon the earth, and the waters increased and bare up the ark, and it was lift up above the earth, and all flesh died that moved upon the earth, both of fowl and of cattle and of beasts, and of every creeping thing that creeped upon the earth, and every man. To all of those who think God is too loving to ever punish anyone, Please explain to us the account of the flood in the days of Noah. When the entire Earth's population suffered the judgment of God with the exception of Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. God too loving to punish? No, that is just simply not true. And so again, we've got some flawed thinking on the part of sinners. Are you smarter than that? I hope that you are. Let me suggest another possibility. Another possibility, and I think, I think this again is a common way of thinking that sinners engage, maybe is one of the most common ideas that sinners have. The idea is that there are a lot of really bad people in the world and, and that is true, that's an accurate observation. There are some really bad people in this world, no doubt about that. But a sinner says, I'm not one of them. There's some really bad people in the world, but I'm not one of them. I'm a, you know, I'm actually a pretty decent person. Uh, I'm a good citizen. I pay my taxes. I try to be kind to my neighbor. Uh, I don't kick the dog, you know. Uh, I I could enumerate all all my good features, you know. I'm not like some of those really bad sinners out there in the world. I'm not as bad as them. I'm going to tell you, that's common thinking. In fact, surveys have been taken that that indicate most people think that they can be saved on the basis of that goodness. I'm a pretty good person and God will save me just because I'm not as bad as some others. You know that's the way the famous Pharisee thought uh, in the story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18 beginning verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God I thank Thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican standing afar off would not lift so much as his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me a sinner. I tell you this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Get that last phrase there? Who, who was right in this? The guy who thought he was so good, better than others? The guy who rated himself by comparing himself to others? I'm better than this publican over here. No, the one who was justified before God was the one who acknowledged his sinfulness. He was not, it, the, the, the self-righteous man was not justified. You know, the apostle Paul actually warned about this business of rating yourself by comparing yourself to others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Paul says, for we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. That is not a wise enterprise. You're not doing yourself any favors by imagining that you're okay because you're better than some others. Now if you stop to analyze that whole line of argument for a a minute, theoretically, theoretically, there's only one guy in the whole world who cannot find someone else worse than he is. He is the one theoretically worst guy in the world. And there's nobody left for him to point a figure out and say, I'm better than him. He is the worst guy. But with the exception of that guy, everybody else can find someone worse than they are, right? but there's no justification in that. That's the way sinners think and it is not wise, Paul said, we've got to mark that out as well. Well, a sinner might also argue, I can do this later, I can worry about God later. I think, just all of us have a tendency to be procrastinators, right? procrastinator that, that's a $64 word, but we know what it means, don't we? Because we engage in that a lot. I, I wonder how many here, this evening. I wonder how many wives have a to-do list at home. You know, we sometimes refer to them as honey-do lists, you know, honey-do this, honey-do that. And so the wives maintain the list and the husbands are supposed to do the list. <laughs> and the husbands are putting off doing what the wife says needs to be done around the house. Procrastinating, right? Isn't that what we do? We're procrastinators. We put off doing what we should do. But I'm gonna tell you the worst area of all to be a procrastinator is in regards to God and doing His will in our lives. But a sinner imagines, I can do it later. I I have lots of time. Uh, I'm a fairly young man, he might say at this point, and I've got a long life ahead of me. And maybe when I get older, uh, I'll think more seriously about these sorts of matters, but not right now. I'll, I'll, I'll do it later. Again, very bad, very bad idea to do that. In James chapter 4, verse 13, James says, Go to now ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city, and continue there a year, and buy and sell, and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. I've always been impressed with James comparing life to a vapor and I I can't read that passage without thinking about how we'll be here in in just a few more weeks, you know, when the weather really turns off cold. And we go out and we start our car and a a big cloud of vapor comes out of the tailpipe. And then just almost, almost as quick as it has appeared, it's gone. And James says our life is like that, and that is in fact the case. We are not guaranteed another day, another hour. In Proverbs chapter 27, verse one, it says, boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. There's no guarantee of tomorrow. You know, the real danger in procrastination is, we just may not have that next opportunity. And and there's three possibilities that I'm sure that you've thought of. One possibility is that you might die before you have that next opportunity or the thought crosses your mind to obey God, you might die. Another possibility and we're not predicting this because we're not capable of predicting it but another possibility is the Lord could return in final judgment before you make up your mind to do what is right, that's a possibility. But I tell you what I think may be the most dangerous possibility of all, And that is that your heart will grow hard. That you have heard the call of the gospel, that you've heard the message, and you've rejected. You said no, and you said no, and you said no again and again and again. And finally, your heart is hardened, and, and the gospel doesn't appeal to you anymore. And now, with your hard heart, you're heading straight for judgment and eternity. Don't let that happen. It is not true that we can always worry about these things later. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning verse 2, says, The day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Notice, when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Notice that expression. When they shall say peace and safety, isn't that what the procrastinator says? No big deal, no worries. I'll have plenty of time, peace and safety, what happens? Sudden destruction cometh upon them and they shall not escape. And so that bad idea that there will always be time later on to do what God wants me to do, that's bad thinking. That's the way sinners think. We've got to learn better, we've got to know better, we've got to be smarter than that. Let me suggest to you that sinners might argue, and some do, that there will be a second chance later on. And so the idea here presented by a sinner would be, I'm I'm just gonna live the way I want and I'll get a do-over at the end. You know, I'll get a a big second chance and I can make things right later. I'm just gonna live the way I wanna live now and then when the second chance rolls around, I'll do it right. Uh, I think all of us know that's simply not true. The very famous story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. There's so much information in that story. Uh, it's such an important and valuable study. But I just want to draw your attention to one aspect of the many details of information that are can- contained in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Luke 16, beginning verse 23. In hell, the rich man lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, notice, between us and you there's a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Abraham said to the rich man, it's, it's a done deal now. Your fate is sealed, it can't be changed. There's a great gulf fixed between you and us. We can't come to you, you can't come to us. This is it. It's over. It's done. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul speaking of judgment, said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive note. The things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Judgment's well, what do you take from that? Judgment's going to be based upon what we have done while we are living while we are in the body. Once our bodies are dead, it's over. And, uh, and the basis of our judgment has been determined. And so this idea that there will be a second chance, that just doesn't work either. And so you just got we're going to have to mark that out as well. Well, we've suggested six ways that sinners sometimes reason. It's all bad reasoning. It's all wrong. And, and I think the Bible clearly shows us that all those kind of things that so commonly thought in, in the world at large, they're just wrong. Now, are you smarter than a sinner? On the game show that we mentioned earlier, and we've sort of made a play on that game show. On the game show, when someone missed a question, they had to say, I'm not smarter than a fifth grader. You know what? I'm not smarter than a sinner, and neither are you. Fact of the matter. Because we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3, verse 23. For one reason or another, it it may have been one of the reasons that we discussed in our lesson tonight, or it may have been some other faulty thinking that we engaged. But the fact of the matter is we have all sinned. We are not smarter than a sinner and that being the case, then we are all in desperate need of God's salvation. We need a a way to answer the problem of sin that exists in our lives, and thanks be to God that He has provided such a way. In His great mercy and grace, God has provided salvation through the shed blood of His own precious Son, Jesus. And He's made it possible for us who are not so smart, you know, we're not so smart to avoid sin in our lives, but God has made a way to escape. Our question to you this evening is, are you smart enough to accept that way? Are you smart enough to accept His gracious invitation to come and be forgiven of past sins, to join in a relationship in His body, the church, His child, an heir of salvation, to have that hope of eternity in Heaven? Are you smart enough to reach out to take that offer that God has provided? I hope that you are. If, if that means that you need to obey, initially obey the simple gospel plan of salvation, we hope that you will do that. Based upon hearing God's truth will you believe it? Repent of your sins, confess your faith in Jesus, be baptized for the remission of sins? It's not a hard thing. It's not difficult, first of all it's not difficult to understand, and beyond that it's not hard to do. God has not asked us to do some horrible drudgery, some terrible almost impossible task in order to be saved. He's not done that. He's made it very easy for us. We can easily understand, we can easily obey. Have you become a Christian? If you have not we hope you'll make that decision. If you need more information, you know, if if it is the kind of thing that you would seriously want to consider but you feel you have questions and need more information just say a word and more study can be easily arranged. We hope you'll make that decision without delay. If you're a Christian already, But, sadly, you've allowed the faulty thinking of sinners to infect your mind again, and you've fallen away from God. We beg you to come back in repentance, confession, and prayer. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing this song.